Is this for credits? The NZATE podcast. I'm standing here. I'm, I'm out in the field, Chris. I'm reporting from oh. the field from um, Karangahapi Road in Tāmaki, Makoto, one of Auckland City's most vibrant and eclectic uh, jaunts, sitting on a Bellini on the side of the road, which for listeners who don't know, is it like a Prosecco with a bit of peach schnapps? A delightful feminine cocktail. It sounds quite uh, sophisticated. Are you sophisticated right now? Oh, Chris, I'm so sophisticated. <laughs> it's a Friday and, and it's been a hard week. It's a tough yeah. point in the term. Definitely a tough time in the term. I'm feeling it myself. Like I, I use the word chaos. I felt like this week was chaos, actually. Yeah. I've felt quite full in the head. A really intense week. It's crunch time. Like this is the week where we're really starting to look at data and make comparisons to previous years. And and it's, there are some surprises there. I think a lot of us thought that 2020 and 2021, they were our years of challenge. But I think now the challenge is responding to the gaps in learning, which, you know, up in Tamaki Nakoto, that's been six months, a quarter of the last two years, students have been learning online. And yeah. also, not only are there gaps, but things aren't back to normal. Like, there's there's a huge amount of continuing interference. Plus, I think people are just carrying a greater degree of complexity in their lives and are trying to manage, but it's showing up, isn't it? It is showing up. Yep, yep. I am so grateful for my team and particularly my associate leader. I just was thinking today, you know, like, you can easily think of hierarchies and, and second in charges or whatever as being, you know, deputies to principals are two ICs to, to middle leaders or whatever. And it's, it, it doesn't work top down. And what I mean by that is that when I, when I go to my two IC, I go to her with such potency and these ideas that are unedited and, and she carries that intensity and supports me editing my thoughts and, calming my thoughts so that when I go to the department with strategy or with, I don't know, ideas or whatever, they're diluted and accessible. And I just couldn't Isn't... lead the team in the way that we do if it wasn't for her counsel. Yeah, I have exactly the same of the assistant HOD in my department. I noticed myself today, I think I literally walked into his room interrupted his teaching so that I could share a thought with him that I needed to clarify, get the clarification mm. and walk back out again. Like, I don't know what yeah. he thought yeah. I was doing, but I definitely, I so uh, relate to what you're talking about. I felt today when I was talking to my associate leader and I was saying like, well, you know, we've got to do better in the data and all of this stuff and like, what's going on? I was electric. I'm a very passionate person and I feel things intensely and deeply and quickly. And so I took all of that energy to her and I was like, look, I'm, cu I'm coming to you first because I need to put this to you because if I go to everyone with this, then that could have devastating consequences. I just thought what a tremendous responsibility it is for somebody to, to hear you and to see you and to give you that space and then to work alongside you to find the right message so that you can do your job. And I want people who work alongside us to know how deeply they are valued and how absolutely crucial their role is in what we do. 
How fascinating that we've both come to that conclusion on the same day. Yeah. At times when things are challenging that you really start noticing how powerful the support is and how necessary it is. In this case, it's about us being supported and enabled by the people whose job it is to kind of support and enable and they do such a good job of it. Much aroha. We're very lucky. It sounds like you're saying something a bit similar, but I think I can be a difficult character to manage sometimes. And I think that my assistant, HOD, does a brilliant job of managing me. And yep. it definitely yeah. is about smoothing off those edges. Just an intense personality. You also, know, not an intense personality, but a delightful personality. Here's Robert the Sullivan. Yeah. Yes, the amazing, delightful. Do you know what I loved? What I just adore about our corridor with him is the tone of his voice. Yeah. Everything he said, of course, is the most important. And it's a really beautiful conversation. And I found it so inspiring, particularly his discussion around his approach to unfamiliar texts, like that will change my practice. Um, Mm. But the trivial, also trivial takeaway is just he's just, got this sort of mischievous, bouncy, lyrical quality to his voice that makes him so easy to listen to. It makes it quite easy to forget how significant he is, doesn't he? He delivers himself with such humility, but he's really quite a significant writer in New Zealand, and um, he made it very easy for us, I thought. Yeah, his writing, I think, is also very accessible. How he explores the relationship between Tiao Māori and colonisation in a way that is not necessarily damning the colonial participants is really, really interesting to investigate. That's right. A package that's going to say the same thing of, of generosity at the same time as vulnerability. Amazing. It was mm. great. I really look yep. forward to people hearing this, actually. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's get me off the phone and back behind the bar and you back to where you need to be, eating your cheese yeah. and prosciutto and black yep. coffee. That's your sort of staples in your diet, isn't it? Pretty much my life. I'm going to take my tie and jacket off and it's Friday night. So, yeah, thanks Yay. very much. Lovely right. to talk to you. Enjoy your Bellini. You too. Thank you very much. Enjoy your long weekend. Oh, do. Okay. Matiwa. And welcome to our corridor with Robert Sullivan, um, esteemed literary dude and also teacher of English. It's wonderful to have you along, Robert. No mai, hari mai. Oh, kia ora, Philly. Ka And so we're primarily talking about your text, Tūnui, this evening. And we've got a couple of texts that we're keen to dig into, um, get your perspective not only as a poet, but also as an English teacher as well. I'm keen to hear about how how you would like these poems to be treated in an English classroom somewhere else in the motu. So could we launch into one of them? Sure thing. Um, well, thank you for having me, you know, on, on this podcast. Greetings to colleagues, uh, hmm. teachers of English. Um, you know, we're doing necessary work. And so um, I think I'll read to you sort of a, a myth-based poem first uh, called Maui's Mission. In the warmth of night, I put feet to my plan, waited for my brothers to sleep. They had spent the day sharpening their hooks, repairing the great net, filling gourds with fresh water. 
They'd bundled taro, taro wrapped in leaves sitting below the cross seats. The bundles and the net would cover me, especially if I said the chant to slow my movement and my breathing. The moon became brighter like a huge fish eye as the chant hooked me. I was holding my grandmother's hook so tightly a little cut welled red between my closed knuckles. Good morning, brothers, I called, and they cussed and moaned until the next chant took us a further hundred miles, and then another, until my chanting made them gasp as we settled on a patch of ocean black with fish. They forgave me, not that it matters. I took the bloody hook and said my business to the ocean. It worked. The fish rose, and our descent was secured. I chose that one, Maui's Mission, because I like writing about Maui the trickster, and he's a, you know, he's a foundational figure, you know, kind of a demigod, myth maker, someone who's still relevant today, you know, with all of his deeds and all the mistakes he made too. And then how do we overcome um, the mistake making and our myth making? What was it like for you to write in the first person? Everyone would know Māori and non-Māori, that, that Māori is, is one of the, you know, my son, I was reading a book to him the other day um, and Māori featured in it. I think it was a, it was a, um, it's a story about Matereki, and he made me go and get my phone and then come back into his room and take a picture of Māori's. It, because he was so impressed with all of the tāmoko. So even from this, this child has got this understanding of this mythological figure as being godlike. To write in the first person, did you have to navigate any of that or did it come quite easily to you? Um, well, all Māori are descendants of Māori, so mm. I really like that idea of voice and the idea that the eye is more of a collective eye. Mm. Um, so it's a kind of a cultural construct, of course. Um, so that's fun. And, of course, Maui has got so many different facets, like there's a Maui and Moana, you know, with the rock being the voice of Maui, right through to different versions, you know, that um, are quite formal sometimes, you know, like Anthony Alpa's um, rewritings of Te Rangi Kahike's Maui. There's so many angles on that kind of superhero dude that's beyond the Marvel DC kind of universe that we've inherited more recently, you know, that this inheritance, this I voice is us. With all of these different portrayals of Maui, how did you want to portray this character? Who's your Maui? Yeah, well, my Maui is someone who's also got another papa because Maui in Aotearoa is influenced, of course, by colonial processes like Captain Cook. Um, so when Captain Cook showed up, all sorts of things started changing for the descendants of Maui. And in many cases, the descendants of Maui are also descendants of Cook. So um, I've also written a lot about Cook, the other foundational figure for our country. And so um, I wrote a book-length sequence called Captain Cook in the Underworld, but my presentation of Cook was he was wearing a mask that sometimes it's a bit like the Phantom of the Opera. He's Captain Cook. And then he drops the mask and he's Maui. Um, and it was a lot of fun playing with myth that way. Have you had any reaction to that that's where people have been confused about that relationship between, on the one hand, foundational figure and on the other hand, 
villainous colonizer, pirate. Yeah, um, I got quite a lot of reaction to the performance of the Captain Cook poem because it's a libretto as well called uh, Orpheus and Rarohenga. And um, it was written for the Orpheus Choir's 50th birthday. And, you know, Orpheus is like the um, myth figure related to poetry. He's the dude that rescued Jason and the Argonauts from the sirens uh, through the beauty of his singing, his, his lyre playing as well. So there's the word lyric in there, of course, and by extension is poetry. So I've got this sort of super poet um, running through the um, Captain Cook in the Underworld poem. And then the reaction was actually about the depiction of Cook. People got mm. very upset that I didn't have a wholesome, positive version of Captain Cook. That surprises me. Yeah. Uh, some people took it quite personally. And I even had a meeting with some of these people afterwards at Victoria University. And, and I actually understood the hurt uh, because they brought up with stories of Cook. And so it's a childhood memory that I was playing with for them. So I do understand that. It's very gracious of you. Oh, no, it's not really. I mean, I just had to represent a range of truths to do with Cook. And, of course, Maui. Maui's the trickster. And so I think it was the trickiness of Maui that brought out the stories of Cook. But the trickiness of Maui and the notion that Maui is an ancestor to all Maori it does have resonances in the present, doesn't it? Because there's a lot of mischief in present-day New Zealand culture, which you could track back to that. In fact, I think mischief is one of our superpowers as a, as a country, and it certainly emanates from our heritage, doesn't it? Yeah, I think colonisation is the biggest mischief maker. So Maui is the figure that's well-suited to colonial kind of living. <laughs> And you know how you were talking about Marvel films. You, then you think about the influence of someone like Taika Waititi on the Marvel films and how a, a sense of humour that we would recognise as being distinctively New Zealand and that mischief starts appearing in that kind of very foreign universe. It's reaching everywhere, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Humour helps everything. Yeah. I think... Um if you can't laugh at stuff, you know, you've got to cry at stuff, so it's easier to laugh. It can also lead to better reconciliations over time. Yeah, that's right, just tacking on an LOL to a difficult email, for example. <laughs> I feel like some of your poems work the other way around, and there's a couple that we're really keen to read with you because they kind of have a kick at the end. You're interested in rock art, eh? I, um, I actually thought this one was funny. And I, I did a reading recently thinking, oh, yeah, this is, you know, kata ti kata kata, you know, LOL. But the person who's listening to it thought otherwise. So I'll let you guys decide. My, I was immediately drawn to this because of the depiction of mature male cyclists. <laughs> And Chris will know as a mature male cyclist. That is um, just, I'm, I am that demographic. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, if mammals are in here, then yeah. surely this will resonate with Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Is it Chris? <laughs> well, yes, it, may, it, it made me think, was that me? Really? Were you up there? Oh. <laughs> it was you. Oh, no. You've been triggered. <laughs> <laughs> All right, rock art. The sign said Māori rock drawings. So no wonder the mature male cyclist said to the group of women, 
What makes the pigeons Māori? He cackled at his own joke. I allowed it to ruin my drive to Omarama. I nearly turned round to talk to him, but then allowed the land, the other limestone cliffs with our tūpuna art, our taonga tukuiho, remind me what was what and who was who. So that cycleways on the Alps to ocean yeah. cycle trail. And yeah, I, I felt a bit intimidated, I think, hearing that guy. So, you know, I wasn't a superhero. I wasn't Maui. I wasn't a decolonization Spider-Man. I was just um, a bit overwhelmed by the comment, you know, drove off. I, I don't know the papa of the artists who did it, but there were some 19th century sailing ships depicted in the rock art. There's Tanifa imagery. Um, so obviously it's, it's 19th century, it's earlier. Um, so it's obviously my tūpuna, you know, Ngaitahu, Fanui. So I'd just been there, just been admiring the art. Some of the signage says rock drawings, not rock art, you know, which in itself is kind of racist. But there's some wonderful sign, signage written by Ngaitahu about the whakapapa, the history of, of those artworks. Now walk away from it. Uh, go back through the turnstile because it's sort of fenced off and they come out to the car park where all the cyclists are gathered and one of the cyclists is reading the sign telling him all about the stuff and he's looking up at these huge limestone cliffs lots of pigeons up there and then he makes his joke you know he cackles and um, I get all upset and instead of being staunch you know I just drive away instead of being a superhero that's an extremely relatable, I think that just stands out. And when you run those conversations through, you know, when you when you had the opportunity to say something and maybe you should have said something and then, you know, moments and hours and days later, you think of the absolute brilliant takedown of that person. The nice thing about being Robert Sullivan is that you can then write a poem. Yeah, and I got that, a poem and, out of it. And, and, you know, like your retort sort of echoes a lot more than his original statement, which makes me think, for example, that I believe a poem of yours, Space Walker, was used recently in a scholarship examination, so went in front of a few thousand people's eyes at, at, at that mm. crucial moment in their lives. And I think that you are speaking for something that's much more enduring when you write this poem, don't you think? I hope so. And I hope he never remembers... He never, you know, has to encounter me reading the poem in front of him, <laughs> whoever he well, is. I don't know if it, that might be a different in our natures, but I hope he does. One of the things that this poem also speaks to, though, is the casual insensitivity that often goes on around the place. And I feel like working with a poem like this with young people, they actually experience a lot of this. They often find themselves distressed by something they encounter and not able to actually express a response at the time. I really like the idea of channeling it in a way like this, making it beautiful. Oh, cheers, Chris. Yeah, life's full of microaggressions, eh, um, mm. on all sorts of fronts. So, yeah, my main front tends to be pro-Māori, <laughs> and, and those are the kinds of microaggressions I encounter, just being a Māori person. But, you know, we all have our groups that we belong to, and, you know, we all know what microaggression is your work has been in front of students in scholarship exams. Cool, I can't imagine that experience of having people engage and interrogate a piece of work and construct meaning. As, as an English teacher, how do you want your work to be 
explored by teachers and students in the classroom. Just with compassion, you know, I'm quite a political writer and so it puts me in a certain kind of camp and I get seen like that. I'm quite conscious of that, but I can't help it. It's just who I am. So some of the poets I admire, they're, they're known for their lyrical abilities, but they also have a message. And so I've always believed in having a message. And I just hope that the message gets unpacked fairly, you know, holistically. So I attempt to be holistic in the way I write. So if I do have an angle, for instance, on Captain Cook, um, I come back to Captain Cook a couple of books later and have another go until I feel like I've been fair to his story. Or I, I try and broaden the story of Maui. My big secret is I'm, I'm writing a history of Aotearoa and poetry. We've got wonderful folks like uh, Michael King who had his perspectives. He had his biases. Most of what he wrote I, I agree with, but not everything. And then we've got Tāranginui Walker and his amazing work and Kawhawhai Tonu Mātou. Um, but we don't have anything really yet in poetry. And so I thought, oh, that's my genre. I'll stick to my knitting and um, write a poetic history um, of this place. So that's my life goal. How terribly exciting. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's my thing, eh? So um, so that's why Starwalker is told in the way it's told, as a kind of a navigational discovery. So it's very precise. It's got 2001 lines. 101 poems, that's right. I read it a while ago now, so it's my millennial poem. But then I've got other books like the Captain Cook one or the uh, Monte Cassino book of poetry, you know, Cassino, City of Martyrs, because that's related to my granddad. So a lot of my poetry comes from my family history, you know, like my granddad's experiences, my grandmother's experiences. This Tūnui book I wrote for my mum, the title poem and relates to our tūpuna Papahuri here, who was one of the prophets from the north. One of the visions he had was of seeing a comet. It also happens to be something that's associated with Ngāpuhi, so I like that. Ngāpuhi is quite strongly in this collection. From from what I know, and I'm I am such a learner when it when in, when it comes to Te Reo Māori and Te Ao Māori, um, but from what what I've learned about Matauranga Māori, so much is not only passed on through oral history um, and oral traditions, but also there's, of course, so much spirituality and mythology. Do you find that writing in a poetic form allows you to capture so much more of that Modi, you know, using different language patterns or um, writing with ambiguity, or it just seems like some of the beauty of that matauranga could get lost if you're writing it in a really kind of logical, linear fashion? Yeah, you got it. So when I first started writing poetry, I used to see Modi as a kind of a force field that I could just reach up and hook into. And literally, I'd hook myself into the Modi and then start writing. And that was the work mode for me, that spiritual thing that you're talking about. And then the other thing you said, Philly, was about the linear nature of um well it could be seen as linear you know the nature of a poem because poems are constructed by lines mm. you know it's just, you know stickic you stickic i like to see my poems as curvilinear like spirals so i wrote an essay about a kind of dialectics as envisaged through the spiral the kōru and even um a, a queer once gave a presentation at our marae and she had a broomstick 
a torino, and she'd moved the spiral like this throughout her talk. And the broomstick just stayed in the background. It was a Monica broomstick. And then she showed pictures of her queer and her moko, her moko puna. And that's how I think a really good poem should operate. Something that you can't quite voice logically, but there is something that is correct in the presentation. Um, and the spiral movement enables that. Because, you know, a spiral is the shape of our galaxy, or a spiral galaxy. Um, so if you were to look at it sideways, it looks like an immense space. But if you looked at it from the top, you can see the spiral shape. And very distant parts of the spiral actually look much closer. Mm. And that's a form of Māori thought, uh, that kind of mātauranga which is embedded in our carvings, our whakaero. So I love stuff like that, and I think poetry can do that. You can join immensely distant dots by putting them in the same line. And then you ask a reader to closely read it, and they're looking at it like that, looking on top and seeing the direct connections, and then a close reader is suddenly seeing how far apart they are too. And that's part of the art of close reading. What a beautiful way of describing close reading. I just want, I just listening to that, I want to be in your it's class. Little, what kind of teacher are you? What's it like to be in your class? Well, uh, in tertiary, I was a lot freer, you know, so I could give my spiral talks quite a lot. Um, and, and I could give some of the um, brief snippets of Marx that I, oh, well, Marxist thinking. Uh, like Louis Althusser's work and the power dynamics and in institutions, that sort of stuff. So being a teacher, I'm very aware that we're expected to produce a kind of a society that's responsive, you know, to what our government wants to see. Um, and, that, of course, that's a collective kind of responsibility, you know. We're, we're building communities. Um, but there still is a power dynamic, of course, so um, it's been an interesting experience for me being a secondary school teacher because of these expectations. You know, coming from tertiary, where you're the critic and conscience of society, to suddenly mm. becoming a, um, a vessel of society's um, dreams, I guess, you know, for our young people, you know, because whānau have expectations, you know, for success. Um, but I still want to position the arts, you know, especially literature, um, in a good light, you know, that there are kind of outcomes for students that aren't held back but actually advanced by knowing good literature, uh, being able to think widely, uh, being able to engage with a world that's more complex than, say, a government would like us to experience, all that sort of stuff. So it's quite a nuanced kind of world we're living in. And that's, I think, what a lot of English teachers think we're there for, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. How do you get there, do you think, when you're working with your students? Well, you know, I'm still a beginning teacher. I'm only in my second year. So I feel a bit humble, actually, because I'm on the teacher's email list, you know, that Dave Shawman, David Shawman runs, moderates really well. Um, and I can see all the mātauranga amongst 
you know, colleagues from around the country and all the different techs that they engage with. We understand that you're actually making a move back out of secondary education. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, I'll still be here in Ormadu, um, but I'm teaching um, creative writing. So I'm an associate professor at Massey University. I was an associate professor over in Hawaii too. Um, right. I, you know, I know that world very well. And I love being able to engage with um, graduate students, you know, on their projects, their creative projects, because I learn a lot that mm-hmm. way. So I look at their reading list and I just dive in, start reading their stuff. Um, and of course, as you know, poetry is my calling. I, I, I love poetry. So it's just wonderful to be able to able to read about it again. And your journey with Te Reo Māori started at university, is that right? That's right. And how does that play into you? I I saw an interview, you're talking about you're more proficient within English and any very fluent um, speaker of Te Reo Māori might notice some of those formalities in your poetry. But how are you you bringing Te Reo Māori to life in your poetry as a as a later learner in life? Well, I've, I've started writing the odd poem entirely in Māori just because, I, you know, that, that thing about nuance. I, I think if you're going to write about being a Māori person in Aotearoa, and especially with the revi- revitalisation of Te Reo Māori, uh, you've got to go there. Um, so I'm, I'm okay, I'm all right speaking Māori, but I really struggled to, you know, to get, a level of Te Reo Māori on the page that I'd be happy to publish. So I actually had lots of help <laughs> over the years. Like I've got this long poem, Karakia, which is a poem I wrote um, in my second book for Bruce Stewart because he did this Cherokee ritual every day at this hui that we were at. And so we'd wake up and give our give our breath to the four directions we'd pass a sacred bowl of water around as we were doing it and there was a petal floating on the bowl it never left me I, I loved that ceremony in, in, in that um, hui for our Māori writers tiha, which means the breath I immediately started translating that poem it actually took me decades to translate it so I got it to a level which I thought was okay then I showed it to good Te Reo Māori speakers, really good ones. And then they made the odd suggestion. Um, but really any errors in it are mine. But I, I felt like I'd got it to a level where my heart was in it. And I think that's the key. You know, Ezra Pound said, only emotion endures. You've got to have an emotional core in your poems because that's what keeps them alive. You know, it's, it's feelings. So all the old stuff that's still around, there's some kind of emotional centre to the work. And that's why they're still here, you know, like um, all that Homeric stuff um, mm. or Sappho, you know, the, the feeling in Sappho and the intensity of feeling that comes through all those senses that she evokes, um, that's there because of emotion. And we're talking thousands and thousands of years, you know, and that's the kind of um, belief system I've got about poetry that it can endure so long as there's someone with a heart who can read it. If you could give New Zealand English teachers a piece of advice, what would it be? Embrace the new curriculum, all that <laughs> local learning. You know, there, there are Māori poets throughout the country and each of them have a local history to their poetry and you just find out who they are and teach them. You made a wonderful post to David Shulman's mailing list 
suggesting that in yeah. great detail and I just appreciated it so much as a call to action. So maybe I might link to that in association with this conversation. Would you be okay with that? Oh, that'd be sweet. Yeah, I mean, um, I co-edited this anthology of Māori poetry, Puna Waikōrero with Raina Whaiteri. So the resources are there and there are new poets like Ruby Solly coming through too. I think mm. Ruby's a great poet. It's about moving past that space of paralysis and vulnerability and and just trying and respecting like you're saying with your own journey with te reo maori that any mistakes you make that are going to be your own but if you can make those mistakes with grace and humility and with an open mind then in an open heart um, then it just becomes a lot easier over time yeah that's it may we impose upon you to read another well, you know, I like cracking a joke in my poetry, so I've always got a tongue-in-cheek. You need great literacy and numeracy to have a career in STEAM subjects. This town has a lot of Victorian architecture, old grain silos, railway sheds, public buildings with Greco-Roman columns, so they've named it the steampunk capital. I like the arching waterfront walkway that takes you to the penguins, and look forward to when I throw a kayak into the bay with its small yachts and powerboats. I haven't counted. Hey, thank you so much for your time with us, Robert. It's been such um, a pleasure talking with you and, and hearing about your craft, um, your journey with Te Reo Māori, to hear you read some of your poems and um, to see how your ancestor Maui has made his way um, into your heart and into your mind and you can certainly see that cheek and mischief making in some of your work so thank you so much and I really look forward to bringing in what's what's a, a tangible thing that I'm taking with me into my classroom this week is that analogy of the koru as a as a structural device for writing um, and for essay writing, um, we have all of these different formats that we use, but why not look to nature because it's in there as well. So thank you for that inspiration. Oh, tēnā koroa. Kanoe te mihi ki a koroa. Harikoa hai. You've been listening to Is This For Credits, the podcast of the New Zealand Association for the Teaching of English. Check out what else we're up to by going to our website, nzate.org.nz.